Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, it's the Freight 360 Podcast. From freight broker sales tips to sports talk, this podcast is all about helping you grow as a freight broker. We're your hosts, Nate Cross and Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. Welcome back to episode 140, 140 of the Freight 360 Podcast. We got a special episode today. We've got a guest with us. We'll introduce him in just a second here. But hey, if you're brand new, we're so glad you found us after 139 other episodes. Make sure to check out everything else we've got out there in the entire library at Freight360.net and wherever you're listening to podcasts. Keep sharing us. We're growing. We're loving it. Lots of questions coming in. A lot of repetitive questions, so we're going to try and have some new ones today. Um, But go ahead. Leave us that five-star review. It helps us rank good on iTunes and all the other charts. All right, so today's topic, and we're going to introduce Matt Perkins here, but we're going to talk about... um, Kind of how to how to protect yourself when it comes to um, you know your your customers if potentially they're not going to pay an invoice or if they're going to get behind and slow pay. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit, but we've got Matt Perkins here. Matt, welcome to the show. It's good to have you, man. Thanks, guys. Nate, Ben, great seeing you. Yeah, appreciate uh, being on the show. Episode one hundred and forty. I've been a longtime listener and a first time caller. Yeah, <laughs> you were saying so. You you were around back in the day for episode one when it was Midnight Freight Broker. So that's. It's, uh, that's good. L- always love having a long tenured person to, to come full circle. So, hey, give us, a, you know, for everyone out there listening that doesn't know you or, or what you do, um, give us just a little bit of a background on, you know, your, your, your work in brokerage and kind of how you got started and what you're doing now. Yeah, sure thing. So currently I run business to business logistics, uh, third party logistics provider, freight broker. Um, background is pretty specific in brokerage so when I came out of school I did start as a customer so I know the customer I know I know what to say to get them off the phone and all that good stuff so started off as a customer through the network that I quickly built I learned how to be a freight broker through the lineage of the old American backhauler for all the old school brokers out there so so you know a few people started their brokerage from that Uh, I came out as their first employee learned everything from the ground up. I still tell my team here, I literally staple papers and put them in bankers boxes because we didn't have digital imaging back then. Uh, Progressed from there. I went to um, another 3PL doing account management, went back to brokerage for about seven years until I decided, hey, I could maybe make the wheel turn a little better. So me and a partner came out and started business to business logistics about uh, going on about 11 years now. Nice. That's awesome. So let, let me ask you because people often ask us, like, "Hey, how long does it take me to actually, you know, become successful?" And the real answer is, not everyone does, right? I mean, some people that that you know, whether you're W two or if you're an agent or if you're if you're going to go launch your own shop, right? Not everyone's going to make it. Not everyone's cut out to do it, and it could be because they have a they they suck at sales or they aren't confident enough or they don't know how to run a business or how to take care of customers. It could be a, a number of things, but let's say you can do you can do all those things, which obviously anyone who's who's lasted in brokerage for a decade plus, you've gotta be able to check those boxes. But what would you say how long uh, before you knew, hey, like this is actually working out for me. I'm I'm building up a book of business, I'm I'm learning and I'm progressing. How long do you think that took you? Wow. Took you know, it took me a while. So where I learned that I could actually do this was probably at my first brokerage. But because I started in ops, I had to 
I had to eat dirt for years. So I went a year or two of just doing ops, tracking, tracing, dispatching, started dabbling in carrier sales. In year three, I went to customer sales, saw a little bit of success from it, got lured away from that specific company to go elsewhere. Then when I came back, I had built that network. And then it just kind of took off from there. So when I, my last employment job, it was a pretty much instant success, but that's because I had the three years sure. behind me. Yep. And I had the network going behind me. Uh, and then with, with BTB here, it you know took off the same day. But again, I had, you know, at that point, 10 plus years of my network, you know, pushing me. I had momentum. So yep. answer that question, it's it's all in what you're gonna do up front. It's the groundwork you lay, it's being optimistic, but it's it's gonna take time. And in this world of this instant gratification, Amazon Prime delivering, everything like that, everybody thinks it's gonna be a success in week one, and it's just not. Yeah. It's gonna take months, easily months, to start getting momentum. Um, I actually, my analogy I give these days is it's a, it's a freight train, right? When you see that freight train stop and it starts turning wheels, it's not going anywhere fast. You don't even know it's moving for the first minute or two, but then it starts going and going and going. And next thing you know, you've got that whole train moving at speed, trying to stop it then. So the first few months of freight brokering, it's that first few rotations of the train wheels. You, you gotta give it time. Yep, Ben, we've seen that a lot. We have seen people that, you know, they're. They think, oh, I, I learned what brokering is, and I'm gonna go get my authority, and boom, it should happen tomorrow, right? But it doesn't. You've got it. It's a continuous learning process. Well, that even I really like that analogy. I mean, I had built another book of business, I don't know, year, year and a half ago, and I mean, I was two years removed from my nah, year, yeah, two years because I was out of my non-compete, and same thing. Like my relationships carried right from one side to the other even over that span of time because again all the stuff that we talk about but the interesting part was the whole rest of it and we just taught a class in the tia right before this on finding shippers and setting up your pipeline and it was the same thing for me and like that's what we try to express to people that are new to this i'm like been doing this the better part of a decade and i still had to get the freight train moving again yeah. like i had to build the funnel i need to get three four hundred leads in there i've got to get into the momentum again to find my feet and my voice and what sounds good to me and what you're hearing because the environment changes based on who you're talking to what's happened right but once it starts moving and you're making your follow-ups and you're getting back in touch with these people like you can feel the momentum and i think that's where a lot of people also don't necessarily get to before they quit in some ways right they find a lead it didn't go the way they expected. They go look for another yeah, one. Yeah, there's the call one more person, find another one. Right? There's that quote. It's like you've got to. It's like it takes ten thousand hours to become like an expert at. I, I don't know. And you're mm -hmm. like the guy. You always have. Yeah, it's you always have Mal the Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm Gladwell's book. Um, I think it was on, it was Blink, but yeah, basically broke down to it took ten thousand hours to master basically any type of skill. Yeah. right. Break that down to like work hours. You're, you're looking at like five years if you're doing it as a full time job. So I I think back to when I got started. I worked in on an asset based trucking for like three years before I got into th the third party world, and I thought I'd pick it up super fast. It it still took me like probably four months before I fully understood everything that goes into the brokerage side. And that's why you see a lot of guys that guys and girls that like, they might be an owner operator or dispatch or whatever. And they're like, oh, I wanna to go to the brokerage side. It, do, it doesn't, switch doesn't flip right away. It's there's still a learning curve there. And um, like what we'll talk about today, right? With, you know, receivables insurance and protecting yourself from things like that with aging invoices. 
you still aren't going to learn that in your first six. Hopefully, you don't have to learn that that in the first six months, because um, there's other problems and more basic stuff that you'll learn. But it, it's uh, it's a constant developmental thing. Because I want to I want to put a caveat to that though, like to that one point you said. Because we actually worked with somebody. In fact, um, he's doing really well. He's opened his second office now. Um, but he was coaching with me early on, and in their first seven months, they hit a home run with a customer. Well, kind of because it took them another two years to collect, I think it was like 350 grand that they incurred in basically bad debt in their first year. But, you know, things are on fire, they're sending loads, all's right in the world until the bill comes due. And then, I mean, thankfully they got paid, they see the other side of it, they've grown, they're five times their size now. But again, this does happen even early on because again, think you were on the customer side, what do shippers do, right? If they can't pay their bills, somebody calls them out of the blue, yeah, you want to onboard me? Sure, go pick this truckload up, right? Yep. It'll be the last person getting paid because everybody else we owe money to, and that does happen. Yeah, that's well, absolutely that's, right. So it's like fa- that's the famous solicitation when someone gets a customer too quick without having a proper background checks. Oh, I got this customer; they want to ship with me. Yeah, they're on a list. Yeah, <laughs> if you just do a search, they're on a list of. <laughs> if it sounds touch. too good to be true, it's probably because you know it is. So. Yes. Um, we're going to get into more of that in, in just a few minutes here. we got to do a, a quick sports recap. <clears throat> Not, I mean, obviously, NFL hasn't happened yet. Oh, you know, I did want to mention in the NFL, some of the, the scheduled games that have come out and some leaks for the schedule. Uh, this will air on Friday, so the official schedule will have already dropped, but we record on Wednesday. So um, here's what I know about the Bills. The Bills are going to be uh, rumored to be playing on Thanksgiving again this year. I think it's Philly, or no, Baltimore. That's what they're saying for the nighttime game. Um, hosting the Titans week two on Monday night football in Orchard Park. I'll be at that game. Um, I think Kansas City game they announced, uh, or might have been leaked, but there were some, there were some other ones out there. Um, so that was the only thing on the Bills, really. But the Kentucky Derby, I know we talked about it, I think, last week. Yeah. But, uh, dude, what was, the, what was the horse's name? Rich strike. Rich strike, the second longest strike to longest um, longest shot to win at eighty to one. The number one was in nineteen thirteen. Donna Rail was ninety one to one. But you were even telling me before this, and I didn't see this. I didn't get a chance to watch it live. But like one, it was at like ninety nine odds or something when they yeah. first announced. So I was like I was looking 90s. it up. Um, I had it. I watch the Derby every year. I don't. I don't know why I get so into it, but I, I like sports in general. So whenever there's like a random like big event, I'm like, I gotta watch it. You know what I mean? Event. I don't care what it is yeah. or if I know anything about it. I've watched cricket at some point because I was like, I gotta learn how this game works. But anyway, the Derby. <laughs> um, I was looking at. It, I was like, all right, I'm gonna. I a bunch of like the New York um, betting like sports books, whatever. They had like special horse racing ones, and they were offering like a risk-free bet. And I was like, okay, I'll go like I'll place a bet on some of the top ones. And if if I lose, they basically give you the they credit it back to you to try and get you to keep betting on the ponies. So I like I was like, all right, let me see what the odds are. And I saw it, they offered ninety-nine to one on Rich Strike. I didn't take it because I was like, I don't want to I don't want to be guaranteed to lose, which I wouldn't have. But uh, I, I bet on like the top three, and I think one or two of them actually like they placed um in the top three so i got the money back on it but how much was the free bet it how was, much was it the was free bet? 200 dollars. so if you don't like 18 grand the yeah i don't well whatever that would have been it would have been a ton yeah, yeah if i put it on that but uh oh. yeah so 
I, I think you had to free bet. bet. I think it has it was a minimum of two hundred. So let's say you did two hundred and you put it on that horse to win. I, man, I should have. In hindsight, why wouldn't you put it on? That's that? free money. Put it on the yeah, longest shot. The longest shot. Yeah. Come on, man. Damn it. Um, but yeah. Anyway, rich strike. Literally, the the owner. I think it was the owner was like, yeah, I didn't even know we were going to be in the Derby until like five minutes before the cutoff on Friday, which was the day before the race. So that's crazy. Just insane. Matt, did you yeah, watch the race at all? The Derby. No, I, well, I saw the replay of okay. it when they were just talking about the the, the odds and everything, and it's just it was cra- you know it, it's crazy how that happened. And they interviewed the jockey, and he said at one point he just said we're going to win this thing, and he just did. I I don't know how you change your perspective to get that horse to go and keep going so yeah. strong. It looked like it was on horse. drugs as fast as it just went from the middle, like from the back to the pack to the middle, and then like the last like twenty seconds just. Absolutely crazy. Just flew yeah. up there past like ten other horses. But I just hope there's no stories like last year, right? Yeah. I mean, last year was all black cloud over the uh, trainer. So let's just hope that it was just a horse that just felt determined to win. Yeah, that was what was it, uh, Medina. I think they were doping, doping a ninety-one to ninety-one to one odds horse. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> they didn't expect to. You never know. One and then ended up was like they were it was doped or whatever, Rescinded. and then it died of a heart attack yeah. like five months later. So yeah, yeah, crazy. Um, the Penguins, Ben, your Pittsburgh yeah. upset the Rangers three to one final. Well, hopefully it's the final game of the series tonight. So because did they they did they lose the first game in overtime like triple overtime or something like that or the second game? Yeah, they lost they lost the first one in triple overtime. But like why? I mean, leading up to this, I listen to still a lot of Pittsburgh radio. They like the Pens were not looking great going into the playoffs. I mean, like they're like, like well, maybe they win a game or two in the first series. Like that was the sentiment from like you know diehard Pittsburgh basically sports fan and media and it's just pretty cool to watch this series dude it's the same with like with like baseball or anything doesn't matter what your record was at the end of the season if you get into the playoffs you're all starting from scratch everyone gets a chance to prove that they're the best team that could beat anybody so good stuff well, I'm going to give a shout-out. Or actually, Ben, you give a shout-out to our friends over at DAT before we hop into the topic. Take it. Taking the guesswork out of freight with DAT. The DAT Load Board Network is the largest on-demand freight marketplace in North America, connecting freight brokers with available capacity on any lane. Grow your business with tools that allow you to find new business partners, and you can quickly qualify and onboard new carriers. With the industry's leading freight rate data, you can make clear and confident pricing decisions. Check out the show notes for a free month of Power Express or Trucker's Edge. And if you're adding a license to your office, use the link, you get a free month, and you support us. Yep. All right. So today's discussion. Um, Matt, I want to kind of let you give a, a brief overview on kind of the, the concept here. So we're looking at, you know, what's the, what's the topic we're going to discuss here? And you had brought up... Um, with how things have been going lately, a lot of brokers may have their blinders on, right? Maybe not thinking about what's going to happen with customer payments and with the economy and all that. So give us, give us for, I know you're not an economist. Maybe you are in a former life, but <laughs> no. uh, what, uh, so kind of set the stage. What has happened and, and why did this, uh, this idea come up or this topic come up in, in your head there? So the, I'll, uh, let's talk about the topic first, and I'll go into the backstory and then today's story, right? So we're talking about receivables insurance, which a lot of people don't know what that is, 
But when you're in the industry of cash flow management, which is deep down what a freight broker is, right? We've got shippers that want to pay us in 45, 60, 90 days, but we have carriers that want to be paid in 20 days or even three-day quick pays, right? We become a bank. So our value is in the cash flow. And we also don't have strong means of evaluating our customers. When we make those cold calls and we're talking to a customer, you know, I'm here in Tennessee, so if I'm calling a customer in Nevada, anywhere, I don't know who they are. I might have heard of the company, their website might be familiar, but I don't know what their credit worthiness is. And there's a lot of companies out there, and it's not to downplay them, but they will give you reporting, and that's great. It's all based on information coming in but there's not a backing behind it. You know, they're gonna give you this report and at the end of the day, you still have to make that executive decision. Yeah, they're not gonna guarantee yeah. if their report or if their data gives you, makes a, makes a bad decision, you know what I mean? Yeah, how current is it? When's the last time they've seen financials? There's so many factors that go into it, into this number they give you. But receivables insurance, when you align with a receivables insurance company, they're actually putting their wallet on the table and saying, okay, do you want $50,000 of a credit line, $100,000, whatever that number is, we'll approve it. We'll, we'll back it so that what happens now is when a customer defaults or doesn't pay, bankruptcy, whatever the case is, if you're not getting your money as a freight broker, you can file a claim, like an insurance claim on your house, on your car, and you will be compensated from the insurance company upwards of 90% of the debt. And then these companies and you know nate we were talking about it there's only so many there's only a couple players in this industry but the beauty of it is they're worldwide companies yeah so you're talking about global companies that know their ways around the you know economic legal system they know how to collect their money back they're they're not going to just give me fifty thousand dollars and say okay matt they didn't pay you here's the fifty thousand and they're going to go back to their desk they're sicking their legal team after that customer. And on top of that, from an actuarial standpoint, they're way more vested to give you accurate information because like you said, their wallet's on the table versus like if you pull a credit report from Truck Stop or whatever, right? Any of those other reporting companies out there, they're just giving you data with nothing guaranteed. Whereas like companies like, we talked about Euler as it's one that I've used in the past. I think you said you used it in the past. You're gonna pay them a premium and they're gonna tell you like, hey, based, they're gonna give them a risk score. I think Euler was one to 10, right? Like seven or below, you could get credit. Anything above that was basically like, you're, you're, you're gonna, they're gonna pre- you're on your own. Insure anything, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But they, what they'll do is they'll say, based on, you know, this risk number that we give you, we're gonna approve this credit line. And if you go over that, we're not gonna cover it. But let's say you stay in that credit line and the customer defaults or whatever. And we're this is typically like a customer going out of business. It's you know, it's it's not necessarily oh, they're going to dispute a charge and not going to want to pay it, right? You're not going to send that to them. Um, but they're going to they're going to take that and go into their collection cycle and they're going to reimburse you a percentage. I've seen like 80%, 90%. And then you're still you're on the hook for a, a, a small portion of it still, which is typically you lose your profit on it and maybe a little bit more, uh, but that's the concept overall. But you know, it's funny, wait, to that same point, I wanted to add something too, because you said earlier in your career, Matt, and it made me think of this, you were talking about accordion bank folders, right? Yeah. Like my first job out of college, this is what I did. I worked for a bank and was a corporate lender. And it reminded me of this too, because I'm like, you're right. I'm like, even when we did this and we were the bank, right? Like 
we didn't take somebody's word for it, right? We got audited statements every year. We did quarterly reviews of it. And some cases it's lower dollar amounts than a brokerage extends, right? I mean, you're extending two, three, four, sometimes half a million dollars in credit to some of these customers. And again, it's like, what are you basing that on? Okay. Like what they well, happened to email you and what they said was yeah. recent? Uh, he's good for it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You know, yeah that's my that's, bunny, Jimmy. He's good for it. No. And, and let's be honest, what, is, what do most, most people do? They get the credit application back, it's got three trade references, and if I was a deadbeat customer, who am I gonna put on my trade reference sheet? I'm gonna put my three people that I'm actually paying. Yep, yep. You know? Not the 15 other yeah. that are in arrears. <laughs> it's kind of exactly. like when, when you apply for a job uh, and they're like, oh, list three references. Like, you're not gonna put the, the bully from school that you know beat you up or whatever. You're gonna put three people that will even if they have to lie, they'll say the best thing in the world about you, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. they're they're not all that great, you know, when it comes to that stuff. So, uh, and even to that point, like I dealt with this today, like a, a customer we had no experience with and we gave him 25K in credit and the the broker, it, you know, hit the credit line, wanted to get it increased and um, was able to, because we had no history with them, we weren't gonna bump it up any higher. The customer agreed to expedite a couple payments on their first couple invoices to show us in good faith, like we're not gonna always pay in, you know, four days, but here's to show our good faith that yes, you got we're worthy of, you know, getting a, a bigger credit line out of you guys. Um, because what you see on a report online doesn't speak the full truth about how they're gonna handle things with you. It just says based on who's reported on them in the past, this is what we know. So Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, we we have a new customer right now where we got something approved, but the uh, you know that customer entity just started recently. But they're a, a you know they're an, under another parent company, so I know there's some better financial support from the parent company. But I want to help this company also get up on their credit. So we've been working with Kofas in this uh, instance, getting their credit approved because the customers agreed hey, I will make some extra payments to you. I'll pay a little bit quicker just to help the process. And it's a great talking point because how often does a customer really want to pay early? Not too often, but if you state your case on what you're trying to do to benefit them, oftentimes they'll pay you early. Yeah, yep, you're absolutely right. And then you get companies on the other side like Walmart, they don't have to prove themselves to anybody. Yes. At all. I remember when I was on the asset side, um, 120 days, and it was like, nope, they're never going to pay any sooner than that. And they might pay slower depending on what's going on, but they don't. They don't have to prove themselves to anybody. So, yep. But yeah, it's a good point. So, so that I guess we'll bring it back to where we were before. So, with what's happening economically right now, um, how does that look to you as a brokerage owner? What are you thinking about as far as your customers and everything with days to pay? So with what's happening right now, and we're actually experiencing it right now, is things are getting, things are slowing down, right? Things are getting soft, sales could be dropping off a little bit for any particular industry, so the customer's gonna start dragging payments out. And that's always the first sign of something could be amiss. So they start dragging it out, they start making payments, then the payments stop coming as routine as they should, it's, it's having that extra security that's helping us right now as well. Uh, for instance, you know, the real world example I have right this minute is a customer that owed us up to $90,000. 
they agreed to start making payments. They started making payments. But then we started noticing the check date is not the date that they say that they're issuing the check. They start blaming the mail. Oh, yeah. And then all, we and sent it out last check. Thursday. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, hey, can I introduce you to ACH maybe? It is a free service, <laughs> generally speaking. And they're like, no, no, we want a mail. I'm like, of course you do. And uh, But now, like literally today, it's uncanny timing. But today we sent an email to our sales rep saying we're at the point of no return they have to pretty much pay the entire balance, which it's bought down now to about 70,000, or we have to turn them in. We have to allow you know, the insurance agency to try to collect on that money, but that customer is probably out of business. The owner knows it, Yeah. the employees may not, but. So let me ask you this, with, with the receivables insurance company that you use, do they have a timeline of when it has to be submitted to them by for it to be a valid claim? Because I know we had that yeah. with Euler. And there were, there were like instances where the the broker or the customer's like, we're gonna send it in like in three days. And we're like, if we don't submit a claim like tomorrow, we're, we're on the hook for this. And you know, uh, so what does that look like for you? So it is roughly 180 days from date of invoice. Uh, we start getting pretty serious at 100 though. And you know, we try to give that grace period. But at the same time, they, they also ask for as close to 100 as possible, only because within that time, they can at least get in line a little quicker than yeah. other debtors, so they can try to collect on any you know, available assets quicker than knowing at 180 days. So we do try to give them that courtesy. To be honest, we've only filed in the, uh, let, me, let me see, so we're sitting at about six years of having this kind of coverage, and in that time, we've only filed about two or three times. Yeah, the, and that's the thing too. It's like any other insurance product. You have to, you got to weigh. Like, if I file this claim, I know my premiums are likely going to go up. So, is it worth it for me to to just not file the claim and lose X amount of money, or can I not afford to do that and I have to file the claim? You know what I mean? It's like, for example, homeowners insurance. Yes, if your house burns down, it's a total loss. You're going to file a claim, but. Let's say you have a plumbing issue and water comes through your ceiling and it's a couple thousand dollars worth of damage. Well, you've already got a thousand dollar deductible and thousand dollars out of pocket. Insurance company does not see you at any higher risk than had you filed a claim. So, or had you not filed a claim or that never happened. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of like subjective critical thinking that you've gotta, you gotta go through that process. And um, well, yeah. yeah. Because the other question I always want and that makes me think about this is that like, what about in the instances, right, where like, you know, they're just waiting to get paid from their customer is where a lot of this stuff originates, right? right? Like, because people think like, oh, like my customer's good. I see their stuff on the store shelves. People are still buying it. Like, why would they not pay their bills? The reality is, is it's usually not that, right? It's usually they have made sales. They're waiting to get paid, right? And it's like, they can't get paid to pay us. And the other side is, again, you put that claim in, like what's the likelihood that you're gonna do business with them ever again too, right? And let's say they do get a check 10 days from now and could have paid you, right? They pay you know, your company and again, you've gotta go back, but 180 days is a long time. I mean, you should really be able to work with a customer throughout six months, basically, that's half of a year. I wanna add this to in. To understand and to figure this out. Here's a piece of advice too. So you brought up a good point, Ben. There are customers out there that they're not going to pay every invoice on you know 30 days or whatever your terms are. It's based on their cash flow, and obviously their cash flow, Matt. That's exactly the whole 
conversation we're having here. That's why the companies get into this this whole pickle here. But let's say that a company, I've had companies that are, uh, it's project based, right? They might have, I need 17 flatbeds to get pipe moved. Um, it's part of a bigger project. And you can give me whatever terms you want, but I'm gonna pay you when I get paid by my customer. If, if you know that's the case, find out upfront before you're gonna make a decision on how much credit you wanna give them and expose yourself there. Um, transparency can go a long way, right? You're gonna feel a lot better if you know that, yes, I'm getting paid in two or three months on this one, but then I might be getting paid in 10 days on these other ones. And you also don't feel like you're being lied to or swindled or, oh, the check's lost in the mail. Like, they're just being honest with you. This is how we operate our business. And if you don't wanna work with us, fine, we're not a good fit, but we're, we're just being upfront and honest. Have that conversation as a broker with your customers if they're not just a, a normal um, revolving uh, amount of business type of customer. If they do like seasonal stuff or if they have big, uh, like a peak season or if they have project-based stuff, um, that's, you know, it feels great to get a new customer, but you gotta, you know, they're not gonna be there for a long time if the cash flow is not coming through. That actually happened to me, the exact same example you gave. So I had a customer that was a forwarder and we were shipping steel in Portiant. So I was getting the entire break bulk shipments in New Orleans. So everything that came in got unloaded, Steve adored, then we routed the trucks to all the steel mills up in, um, like in the Ohio, Michigan area. Well, that was when the tariff went in, in like 17 or 18, the 20, 25% tariff on like imported steel. And what happened was we're shipping it, right? Like in the middle of, we're like three weeks into a four or five week project, right? And we're shipping five loads a day for 45 days. What happened was when that tariff went in place, they all argued over who was gonna pay the 25%. And then they refused to pay until they worked that dispute out. We got paid, but I know, because I've even, I even talked to my customer years later, it took them like a year and a half to get paid what they were owed on all of that because everybody felt like they had grounds to dispute it. And again, we were lucky because they made us whole, but I knew like they didn't get paid for like another year after that. And again, the same instance, Project Freight, it wasn't that they weren't willing to pay it, it was that like they didn't want to pay the premium, and then the customer that was shipping it into the country was the one paying them. So the receivers didn't want to pay the shipper, the shipper didn't want to pay the forwarder, the forwarder was the only one that had the cash that paid us the broker. Yeah. But nobody else was made whole until like a year and a half later. What's a big thing too is that like a lot of, a lot of companies, you're gonna have a retained earnings. So if you don't know what retained earnings is, that is a amount of money that you basically keep as uh, just like slush money that's available. So as you have an ebb and flow in your business, you can cover payroll and you can cover your basic expenses and you know whatever your vendor payments are. A lot of times people, they'll want like a quarter or a half a year's worth of their expenses and a retained earnings or to keep them retained earnings in, their, uh, in the bank so that if they get slow paid by their customer or they have a, a, a peak season or something like that, they've got the funds on hand to still keep paying promptly so they don't get a bad name. Not everybody does that. Not every company is as financially healthy or stable as they wanna be or as the next guy. But um, that stuff is is real. And let's say you you tripled your business in a single year. Well, you're gonna you're most likely not gonna be able to keep caught up on having that much money in the bank. You're relying on your receivables to come in. So there's a little My favorite accounting saying lesson. More businesses die of indigestion than starvation. Like people think because a business is growing is just only good things. And that's one of the main reasons why companies 
do go under is because again, their sales have outpaced their cash flow, their cash on hand, they can't finance their businesses, they can't pay payroll, and eventually, you know, it's over. That's a, you know, a good point. I was, so I, I'd like to talk about the story that even introduced me to receivables insurance because I think it'll resonate with a lot of people that are listening. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes along with that comment you just made, Ben, along with the other comment about, you know, when you're seeing things on the shelf and you're thinking, okay, everything's good. But it, this is an insurance policy, right? So here's a story. One, one year, it was our third year in business, so we we're still a pretty young company. And we had this landscaping customer. So when you go to Menard, well, Menard's in the Midwest, but Lowe's, Home Depot, and you're buying those bags of mulch, a two for five, two for four, whatever the price is. Yep. That was these guys, right? So these guys were bagging the mulch, the rock, all that stuff for your landscaping needs. We were shipping upwards of 20, 30 loads every single day because it was the spring season, right? But we had zero idea how to you know, associate a credit line. So we just kept going. We're like, well, we're making so much money. You know, like, look at all the profits, look at all the loads. They, they're not saying no. So all of a sudden we go like two months into it and you know, the checks are, they're coming but they're not coming as you know fast as it's going. All of a sudden, the check starts slowing down. And we start asking questions. You know what's going on? What's going on? And this is the, now. Keep in mind, this is the second year we're dealing with them. We dealt with them on the tail end of their season the year prior, and then we're like we were ahead of it in the spring. Well, then they just like stopped paying, and they were trying to communicate, but it wasn't really a lot of good information. But finally, the one guy said, "Look." I like you guys, but you're probably gonna need to get a lawyer. And that was, you know, and the comment we kept saying was, well, do we keep giving more credit? Like, we're moving all these loads. And we're like, well, what's the worst that's gonna happen? And then like, we're, we're in for a penny and for a pound. And that's what happened. So we were one of the largest debtors on the bankruptcy. And we got a call from a sales rep from Euler at that point saying, hey, did you hear your competitor uh, did you see your competitors on the list? And we said, yeah. Did you know your competitor just got a check for 90% of that balance listed? We're like, no. He's like, ask me how. <laughs> we said, That's a good thing right there. That's a great, I love it. It That's- was slam dunk. Oh. I mean, the guy literally said, this is, this is what I sell. And we said, can you come in tomorrow to talk to us? Now, obviously we weren't gonna get paid on that yeah. account. Um, but it was a six, it was a multi six figure loss. I mean, if you look at it from a sales revenue, we lost multiple six figures. We still had to pay all the carriers. Mm-hmm. And we were a young company. We paid all of our carriers. We laid off nobody, which I'm proud to say in that instance, but you just don't know. And, and so to, to the comment about being on the, sh- the stuff on the shelf, right? So here's the funny story in court. Because we, since we were a top 10 debtor, we were involved in the conglomerate that would be on the conference calls with the lawyer. The CFO of this company flat out on on the stand under oath was asked, do you even know if you're profitable selling your bags of mulch and this and that? And he said, we don't exactly know. Wow. Oh. And that was the light bulb. It's like, holy cow. And I've never said no to a insurance policy for receivables since. The only person that won in that situation is the the, the homeowner that got mulch for pretty cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's also the business owner. He was, I won't go into crazy details, but the, he was so he was structured so well, I'm sure his golden parachute worked just fine. Well, that's what I was gonna say, because what a lot of these companies do in like the fraud cases that I know that like I've been a part of, and again, previous life career, is that like 
they'll keep selling because if they can keep getting paid, right, they take that cash and pull it out of the business, then they fold it and then just hope that they can hide it or get away with enough of it. So when the do the chickens do come home to roost, that like they've got enough like like squirreled away. It happened short story. It happened in Boca. It was on the news two weeks ago, and it was a car company. But one financed it and the other one sold it. And they were high end Lambos and like supercars. Well, when the one folded, they found out that they literally sold every car they had on their property. They didn't have titles for them. They were just taking two three hundred grand. And then they just put paper up all over the windows one morning and people went to go get their cars and they were literally gone. So like that was, and that's what they do. They're like, hey, the ship's sinking. Take as much cash as you can. We're already basically going to jail or whatever they did wrong. Took whatever cash they could, cash they could and hopefully got away with it. I heard about that story actually. That's the second dealership in a year to actually do that. They were selling cars without titles. I, I love cars, so. yeah. And they were selling, the other one was out in, I believe, Arizona. Um, and they were selling cars without titles. And people were buying cars and not getting them or not getting the title. A guy bought one, it was brand new, dropped it off to get like um, some stuff added to it. He's like, I haven't even driven my car. Had it delivered here and I went to go pick it up. And he said, I only went to pick it up because I saw it on the news. And when I drove by in the morning, the place was boarded up. Uh, that's but, insane. Yeah. Well, I just, can't even imagine. Just a but again, this, I mean, just because you're seeing products and just because everybody else thinks it's going well, again, like there are things going on and not everybody's ethical and not everything goes out the way it's supposed to. So Absolutely. the receivables insurance piece, we have, we've touched on it briefly in other episodes, I think, or in some of our content that's out there. Um, like any, like any expense, uh, or any insurance product, right? It's it's meant to, you spend money as an expense and it's meant to offset risk for you. So um, Matt, let me ask you this. At what point in a broker's career, let's say someone opens up a brokerage, at what point in their career should they entertain the concept of receivables insurance? Is it day one? Is it once they start moving any amount of freight? Is it when you hit a certain revenue? As a business owner, what's your what's your uh, take on that? Well, you, I mean, you've been burned, you know what I mean? Like. Yeah. It didn't take you much to, to talk to the guy from Euler. No, but. no. So I think it it comes down to multiple multiple decisions. One, what is your risk tolerance? How much are you extending a customer? So when we first started the company, all of the customers <clears throat> had an existing relationship with me, and so I knew they were paying the bills because I kind of dealt with it on the back end at the previous uh, location. So. I knew that they were good for it, but again, going back to the same story that I just told everybody, you just don't know. Just because you know them personally, you might take them to a dinner or a baseball game, doesn't mean you know their financial status. Yeah. So it's what's your what's your risk tolerance? If you start dabbling with employees, if you start dab, you know, they're gonna bring you customers that you don't know. And that's one thing. So once you start giving up control of your brokerage, you should hands down be looking at it because that this customer did come to us from somebody else. It was not an acquired customer of myself or my business partner. So we didn't have that keen eye of judgment. And unfortunately that person brought us another, you know, very small deadbeat that uh, stiffed us as well. And, you know, we had a few of those that actually happen, just not to this level. So if you start having employees, look into it. If your risk tolerance is low, look into it. it the premium is based on your sales. So if you I was going to ask you, sales, how do they, how do they, what are you, what are you comparing this risk to, right? Like, what is the typical cost? How do they calculate it? How is like, how does that go? 
Yeah, it's it's like fractions of pennies on the dollar for, for sales. So to to give you just a, a rough idea, we spent about fifty six thousand dollars this year on a policy that covers me upwards of sixty million dollars. Yeah, I was gonna say when um, last company I was with, I think it was a hundred k a year was the premium covered eighty percent of the loss, and the company was probably doing. Hundred and some million dollars. So yeah, it's, that sounds about the same, the same ratio there. And it, but you're right. It's, I mean, it's you're talking it's peanuts. It's like almost nothing. But as you're growing, like you said, if you're doing if you're going to do fifty, sixty million dollars in a year, um, you know, it's worth spending forty, fifty grand or whatever for a policy like that to to cover your butt because um, it's a tough pill to swallow when you've got to write off a loss of six figures. You know what I mean? So that's the thing, you know, and I just, I don't know what a base premium would be. I mean, when we, when we started the policy, we were about a $5 million brokerage. So we were spending uh, about twenty twenty five $25,000. So, I mean, if you're entry level, you could still be just spending $10,000, but isn't that worth it? You know, when you could, you could lose $10,000 and you know, the average, our average billing right now is $1,500 a load. That's yeah. just like, yeah. you know, you're talking about. 12, what, 12, 15 loads, you could easily make up, you know, you could lose that money or you could invest it and just be protected. And then it's all gas, right? Because now you've got that backing, that confidence. You'll, you'll sign on any customer. Yep. Because if they pass if they pass the sniff test with your insurance company, you're going to give them a credit line. And that's the thing, too, that's worth saying is it's not just a, hey, I have this policy. I can do whatever I want. No, they're, part of what they do is they're going to tell you yay or nay. And if yay, how much for a customer, yes. right? You have so, a credit department. So you base, I mean, you're getting a credit department with that as well, right? You're getting a credit department of people that that's all they do for a living. They have the resources and the skill sets to just do that job, right? And that in and of itself is incredibly valuable for companies that are, like you said, have employees that are on the growth side that are, you know, bringing on risk that they're not necessarily aware of for a lot of different reasons. Yep. Yeah. And let's be honest, I, I could never even hire a credit analysis for $55,000 no. a year. I was just gonna and, say that, you couldn't. And then credit analysis is not gonna go knocking on the legal doors to collect money anyways, or pay me any bad debts. So like, it's pretty much a no brainer. Like you said, Ben, you've got an entire credit department, you got an actuary department. They're, it, it's non-discriminating, uh, you know, to its fullest. It, it's black and white, here you go. These people are good, we'll, we'll approve this, we'll partially approve that. They said it, and I am no longer playing favorites among sales reps. It's not my decision. It's yep. insurance company's mm -hmm. decision. It's a good point. So, well, good stuff. Good discussion. Um, I'm gonna give a shout out to our friends over at Lean Solutions Group, and then we'll hop into our, our Q and A before we wrap it up here. But this quarter, we've been focusing a lot on the labor shortage. So, I mean, even. <laughs> Even if you wanted to go hire a, uh, a credit analyst, right, at 55, yeah, good luck with um, however, Walmart's given sign-on bonuses now, right? But anyway, with the labor shortage out there, uh, Lean Staffing, that's one of their divisions of Lean Solutions Group, does a great job with the Nearshore model. They've got multiple offices, offices down in Colombia, South America. So if you're trying to fill maybe a, a credit analyst seat there or uh, account rep or dispatch, tracker trace, whatever the case is, Check them out at leangroup.com. You can get bodies in seats for roughly half the cost, if not less than that now, with what wages are in the US. So check them out again at leangroup.com. So today we got 
two questions. Um, first one is, how do I reinstate my authority? Um, so the last I checked on this was probably three months ago, and I'm curious if you guys have any other insight, but the same system, the URS, is the Unified Registration System, um, I believe it's the same thing for applying for a new one or if you have an old one that you're trying to reinstate it. I think it's one of the first questions it asks. It's a lesser fee though, because I think you pay you pay 300 for a new authority and it's like 80 bucks to reinstate it. Does that ring a bell or sound, am I in the ballpark? It sounds good. I've never re I've never had sounds to reinstate. <laughs> so if you've I've, never had to reinstate it, that's a good no. thing. It's a good yes, thing. Yes, indeed. You probably see that a lot more with motor carriers though anyway, if they, um, smaller trucking company, maybe they, they maybe they are slow or they're kind of taking a, a break. It's just an owner operator, whatever. Um, and they're like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna renew my authority. And they just they let it go. And then, hey, I want to reinstate 80. the same MC number so I don't look like I'm two days old. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's um, it's eighty on FMCSA's website. Is it URS? It's eighty bucks. Eighty bucks. Yep. There you go. Eighty bucks. So go, you could either Google it or just go to FMCSA's website. Their their registration system is all digital online now. It has been for like close to 10 years. Um, the form is uh, all electronic. So you literally just type in, it asks you questions, and then you pay them, and then you wait. So yeah, yeah, request reinstatement online, and then you submit an MCSA 5889 form via the web form. There you That's go. It. There was my guess, Matt's guess, and Ben's official answer. So There you go. Good stuff. Uh, second and last question here is, how do I handle the it's customer routed objection? So, you know, you call a prospect. Um, and I'm going to broaden this. They could say it's customer routed. They could say they only use, um, they don't use brokers. They only use asset-based companies, um, whatever the case is. It's a pretty standard common objection. We were actually just talking about this uh, an hour ago, probably, Ben, you and I. Um, so I, I'll give my take and then I'm curious what you guys think. As a starter, um, it could be BS, it could be real, um, but the customer routed one specifically, if um, and Ben, I'll let you elaborate more on it, but let's say that wherever they're, whatever they're shipping, they're saying that their customer that they're shipping it to is the one picking the truck and all that. Well, how did it get, how did it get to them? Right? Do they have inbound freight that they're controlling, or is they, or are they not controlling anything at all? They're just they just have the best best situation. They have no transportation headaches. It's someone else's fault. Someone else's problem to deal with. So that's my take. Is you have to uncover if it's real, and there's a lot of ways you can you can ask additional questions to uncover that. So what do you guys think? Let me ask you, Matt. I mean, you were talking about this earlier in the episode when you used to be on that in in that role, right? And knowing what to say to get brokers off phones, right? Like. What normally do brokers say when you said that to them? Oh, I just said, you know, usually I just said, you got to call me back. And, you know, yeah. I was pretty young at then, so I didn't, I, I didn't hone my uh, gatekeeper skills that well. So it was just pretty much, I just didn't answer the phone for the yeah. most part. But, um, yeah, I mean, Nate, you, I mean, as far as my advice, I mean, you hit it on the head. Number one, how'd the freight get there? That's one of my favorite lines. Uh, one of my largest customers and longest standing customers is a customer pickup. And they do that because, you know, in the world of pricing, when you're buying a widget, there's two pricing that that's a, that, that widget manufacturer is going to give you. It's delivered or it's pickup price. So just do a simple math and say, well, there's this gap. 
between the two pricing, but I can move it for this, meaning I get to keep that. So hence the customer pickup and you know, they create an entire employment department of like five or six people because of the savings they get when they do customer pickup. So ask, your, ask that prospect, okay, great. You got customers picking up your freight, that's fantastic, what a headache off your plate. But how does the freight, you know, how does this, the material get to your facility? Oftentimes, if you take control of it, you can save money versus your delivered price that your supplier's charging you because they're probably marking it up because every customer usually marks up their price a good 15, 20% on the transport. Yeah. So there's that. There's another one that you can throw the Hail Mary saying, hey, I get it, that's great. But every now and again, something happens where maybe you have to cover for your customer's shipment because something didn't go right and your customer's mad. Who, who moves it then? You know, when, it, when, they, when the customer pushes back and say, tells you, no, no supplier, you screwed up, you have to ship it to me now at your cost, who are you gonna call? And that's one. And then, you know, when we talk about referrals, if, you, if, you've, if you've built any kind of rapport with that customer, that, that prospect, why not ask for the referral? Hey, you know, is there any way you could throw my name in the hat? Um, it's actually happened to me before. I've built, but you, that takes a little relationship building. You don't yeah. ask them the first phone call. They're not going to say, who are you again? No, I'm not going to refer you. But that's down the road some. Yep. Spot on. That's literally like, that's my prospecting call. That's how I handle the objection. And those are the different avenues I'm looking for, right? Because the the flat, the, the ridiculousness of it is no facility anywhere is just having things arrive and disappearing without any recollection, any like authorization or any control over it, right? Like it would be a melee. So again, like the only thing is, and Matt even said it out loud, but that's what I go at. I go with a pattern interrupt. Like I say what they're not expecting. They're expecting me to go, oh, or they're expecting me to argue with them, or they're expecting me to hang up. So I just go with the exact opposite. That's fantastic. So nobody's got to deal with any of the headaches picking up loads. That's got to make it so much easier to run your warehouse. Who does have the fun job of, you know, dealing with all the truck drivers that, you know, arrive and leave? Oh, that's Jimmy. All right. Well, now I got Jimmy's name, but, you know, then we're going from there to, again, well, how do you guys get your shipments inbound? Anything that leaves that building had to get there some way, right? That doesn't open any avenues. You could save them some money because again, if they are paying FOB, they're likely paying more than it would probably cost you to do it for them. And then, you know, the fourth route is if you've talked to them once or twice or you're on your third call, I'm asking for the referral. Hey, who is it that handles that? And by the way, like when you guys get jammed up and something comes up last minute and you've got to get a load out, who do you guys utilize when these scenarios come up, right? Oh, well, yeah, we use a broker for that. Okay, right? Like, and again, that's usually maybe two, three conversations, but. Yeah. There's and still a I'll, lot of opportunity to uncover and a lot of information to find before you bail and pull add the ripcord. To, with um, any kind of objection or if you if you if you smell something funny on a prospecting call, don't get in a pissing match. It's not gonna lead you anywhere good, right? If you've decided that okay, I'm not gonna mess with this guy anymore or this girl anymore, like just move on. Go on to the next call. If if, if the call's not going good, it's not going good. By you trying to prove them wrong and call their you know, call their BS you're not going to get their business. It's not going to yeah. do you any good. They're just like, Ugh! so. Wait six stuff. months, maybe they'll quit and then there'll be someone new in the seat. Then you find out, hey, they do rot it after all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you guys must have switched. The last guy told me, no, no, we've always <laughs> been doing it this way. So, well, good stuff. Good episode, Matt Perkins with B2B Logistics. Did I get it right? B2B Logistics. Well, technically, legally, it's BTB. Oh, BTB. But 
Yes. Okay. Yes. The two is T O, not oh, T W. Okay. Unfortunately. Gotcha. Well, awesome having you on. Happy to have you on any time to go through um, some good content. It's always it's nice to have a conversation about um, stuff that happens. You know, the things you want to do when you've you've reached success in brokerage, and you know, even for the folks out there that are newer in brokerage learn about this stuff and understand what's coming down the road. Maybe you're a W-2 and you never want to own your own shop, your own brokerage shop, that's fine. But you can at least understand what goes in to the credit decisions when you get turned down for some unknown farm that all of a sudden is growing corn, right? Because they, they've got no history and you know they're at risk of not paying their bills. So it's just good to understand the big picture there and have the right questions to, to ask your customers so you have proper expectations about what are the payment terms and what can we expect out of you guys? So good stuff. Um, any last thoughts around the house? Matt, what's, uh, I don't know, what's, uh, what's happening good in Tennessee <laughs> this week? You Anything? know, the weather's turning nice. Uh, boats are in the water and uh, my kid's soccer season is coming to a conclusion. So it's time to enjoy some summer. There you go. You ever do, I, so I go down to Nashville like every every handful of months and I hear people always tell me about like, they will do these things where they hop in a like a like an inner tube and they go down a river, river. or a creek with a, just a cooler Case of, beer. of beer. Is that a thing? Like, yeah. is that really happening? Oh, it, it, it is. Now, we have it here in the Smokies. Uh, there's a small little town, um, uh, drawing a blank all of a sudden, but you can go down a little rapid with a raft, but this uh, location doesn't allow you to have a cooler, unfortunately. You can't even bring a bottle of water. Wow. Um, so it's, yeah, it's unfortunately a few bad apples, right? You leave some water bottles floating in some nice uh, clear water and they get, you know, it's not good for business, so. Yep, so um, there's always someone that ruins the fun for everyone else. Yep. Well, good but stuff. That is a thing. Yep. Ben, what do you got? Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And until next time, go build. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Check out the show notes for links to anything that we've referenced on this episode. And make sure to visit us online at Freight360.net to see our entire library of episodes, videos, blogs, and more. And make sure to check us out on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel for daily and weekly tips and content. If you'd like your question answered on the show, fill out the contact us form on our site and we'll see you next week.